Hi, everyone. Welcome to Farsight's Existential Home Podcast. I'm really excited to have Liv today with us. It's been a rocky road and I'm so excited that it's finally happening. You have no idea how much people have been looking forward to this already. So I'm really excited to have you on. You are definitely a pretty special creature. I've seen you lots on TV, then at EA conferences, and recently bumped into you at a, one of these ominous Bay Area house parties. And yeah, yeah. interesting background, both in terms of like, your background in physics, but also as a poker player, you've really made a name there really for quite some time before then kind of like using the, all of that talent and like analysis talent to really try to help make the world a better place. You have a podcast now as well that I think is really exciting and like a really hilarious YouTube channel where I think you have a really unique talent of like packing very abstract concepts that have been around in EA and like generally long-termist areas for a long time into succinct mimetic packages and getting them out there in the world. So thanks a lot for joining. Really excited to have you on. And maybe just for everyone's interest to bring them up to speed in case they haven't heard about yet, you mind telling us briefly your life story in like a few minutes and especially the kind of that switch that made you go from poker into EA with basic perfective giving and so forth. That would be wonderful. Sure. Yes. So... Grew up in the UK, always loved science, studied physics, wanted to become a physicist, but at the same time realized that maybe a path in academia wasn't quite fit my personality style. I always liked a lot of competition and sort of extroverted type things, and academia didn't quite seem like the right path for that. And it was so sort of almost through chance, I applied for a TV show that was looking for five beginners in the game of poker. And so I was applying to a bunch of game shows at the time. I don't know why. I just, again, like a way of making money in the short term. So I, I learned how to play poker on the show and it was like a light bulb moment. I just completely fell in love with the game. So I decided to put physics on hold and see if I could make it as a professional poker player. Cut to sort of 12 years later, that thing worked out very well. I ended up having a pretty stellar career in that regard. But around 2014, I started to feel... Poker is a very zero-sum game, right? By definition, one person's win is another person's loss. And I think it just started to not quite feel right. Like, oh, is this all I'm going to be doing for the rest of my career? Or is there something, is there a way to make more of a positive impact? And some other poker players were also getting more and more interested in philanthropy. And we met some effective altruists. It was the Swiss contingent who sort of explained, they gave all the arguments, the burning building, the drowning child in the pond, et cetera. And they just really resonated. I'd always been interested in philanthropy to an extent in that I would see animals and the environment were always my sort of, that's where my heart tended to be drawn to. And, but at the same time, the more like mathematical sort of data-driven part of my brain was probably not quite satiated by like, it's like, oh, okay, I just see a thing, I get to it, and then I feel a little bit like emotionally better. And there there wasn't much sort of reasoning behind my giving. And then once I learned about effective altruism, I was like, oh, this makes complete sense. This is why it's not the whole world thinking this way about this. Like, obviously, we need to triage the world's problems to an extent. And so we started a movement called Raising for Effective Giving, which encouraged poker players to donate to highly cost-effective charities. And then the more I sort of learned about it, I was like, it just, my interest in poker started declining and my interest in realizing sort of the extent of the world's problems and particularly the emerging problems into the future from potential new technologies. It was like, I could just couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I eventually quit poker and then I'm now sort of involved in the community full time. 
Yeah, awesome. I think speaking of like the kind of like negative sum versus positive sum. So if you have this really interesting podcast where you really explore more of the win-win potential solutions and also have, I think, a really just almost like somatic understanding of competition and in, in all of its ways from poker playing. And so I think many people here on this podcast certainly are familiar with meditations on Moloch and like lots of other uh, of the kind of like God Alexander writing, even like the goddess of everything else and so forth. And I think those are really interesting kind of like packages for like how one could explain kind of like the role of competition and it's like its benefits, but also its potential kind of like shortcomings for kind of like helping us become a better civilization. So I really wonder like, how do you think about Moloch? Like, could you kind of like lay the land for people here of like, what got you interested in starting this podcast and how do you think about these collective action dilemmas and so forth? Yeah, the Moloch thing came about after reading Meditations on Moloch by Scott Alexander. It was a borderline religious experience for me reading that, that piece. It's just, I imagine most people here have read it, but anyone who hasn't, go read it. Because it, it puts into very artistic words, but also very like spelt out, this mechanism of basically misaligned incentives of competition gone wrong, where basically, you know, where which is driving so many of our problems. Almost all of our major problems are a result of these collective action problems where like, basically individual agents, individual competitors are encouraged to, the short-term incentive makes them do action X, which tends to sacrifice other values Y, which if everyone does it on aggregate, creates a sort of negative sum outcome. The classic, classic examples would be countries pouring more and more of their GDP into military defense, because if they don't do it, they're going to be left vulnerable to their enemies who will. And that takes away important resources like healthcare and infrastructure and so on from their citizens. And you get this like big military industrial complex. So like, Moloch is kind of like the, this personification of this very unpersonified collection of forces of these essentially economic incentives. And after reading this piece, I was just like, okay. How do I turn that? How do I popularize this for an even wider audience? Because still ultimately that, that it's a, it's a text blog piece that takes about 90 minutes to read. Most people, particularly in the internet age, are not going to spend the time to read that, no matter how many times you tell them to. So is there a way I can break this down into video form for a different audience? Plus, I also just wanted to try my hand at acting a little bit. Although originally the monologue videos, I wasn't planning on acting. I was going to do it in a kind of dry presenter, like science video way. And then I was like, wait, but this Moloch character, like, what does it feel like? What is it? How does it, what's it, what's its mind like? If What does it want? And the more I thought about it and sort of meditated on it, I was like, I think I know that thing because I've been that. Poker in many ways is a slightly psychopathic game, right? You want to outmaneuver your opponents, you want to deceive them, you want to apply pressure on them, you want to make them feel uncomfortable, etc. But because it's within the like boundaries of a pre-agreed game, I think that's morally fine because everyone knows what they're signing up for and so on. But and the externalities generally, you know, on, on average on a poker game, I'd say the externality is positive. Most people come and have a good time and they want to keep doing it. But there are situations where the externalities are negative. And so yeah, as, as you mentioned, like sort of this like idea of like somatically embodying these th- this force led me to like decide to dress up as it and act it out as a character. So yeah, I mean this probably sounds a little bit abstract. It's easiest for people to see the videos so they sort of explain themselves. Sorry, remind me of the original context of the question. Yeah, just like your conception of Moloch, and perhaps if you want to, I, I love the example by the way of like the military industrial complex because I think I do think that's where it shows up 
perhaps most risky for humanity, like especially if you one of the ones. like first strike, first strike dilemmas and so forth. What's another one that comes to mind? I mean, another very present, pressing one, arguably the most present one, is the race to AI. Again, monarchy forces incentivize people to do whatever they can to get a short-term advantage. So in the case of like, let's talk about AGI. I mean, there's many different sort of ways risks from the AI space can manifest, certainly within narrow AI, certainly in a sort of wider, like speeding up of misalignment within this. If there are companies that are misaligned with the good of humanity, if it's like a an oil company or whatever, if they now develop a narrow AI that makes them even more efficient at extracting oil at faster rates without also developing carbon capture or something at the same time, that's also bad. That's another example of how AI can create bad outcomes without it needing to be like a big super intelligence. But then you've also got the race to artificial general intelligence, which is sort of from a Darwinian standpoint, pretty exciting, but also potentially risky thing if we don't do it right. And the thing is, because as more and more players enter the game of trying to build, be the first to build these incredibly powerful technologies that could be dual use, use for good or bad, then the more intense the competition gets and the more they are encouraged to sacrifice important other things in order to win, such as safety, the ability to understand what your system is doing, etc. So that's a very, very pressing manifestation of, of monarchy dynamics. I call it monarchy. I, just, I don't know. I don't know if that resonates with people, but yeah, a Molochian, a Moloch trap, multipolar trap. That's the thing. There's many different terms for Moloch. In, in a more conventional sense, it's often known as like a social dilemma, multipolar trap, race to the bottom, arms race. It's like those cluster of terms point to it. But Moloch, I think, is for me, it's the best casual term. Yeah, I think especially in the AI scenario, it's also really interesting because you have this other interesting dynamic where even let's say AI systems weren't possible to build that child so like agi systems but even just by different actors assuming that they are possible you have these kind of like runaway dynamics and potentially even an incentive to do a first strike like let's say china was thinking that the us was coming very close even if we weren't there wouldn't be very much that we could kind of signal to them that we may not actually be getting close and so it kind of like also really kind of like amps up the incentive to strike first to avoid like a potential takeover, even if it, that thing in itself that you're trying to avoid isn't even possible. So this kind of like runaway race also works on expectations, which I think is like perhaps almost the scariest bit because for no reason actually it may have in a, in a really bad place. But maybe taking it like into a more positive direction, you focus a lot on also win-win strategies, right? So you're not just like kind of like poking around with the problem and saying like, look here, it's pretty messed up. I think people have been kind of like taking different dabs at the problem for a while, but you also specifically try to think about like new win-win solutions. And you know, you have this kind of like approach towards more positive sun dynamics. And I think it resonates really well when I first saw the videos and so forth, because there's this concept of a Pareto-topia. I don't know if you've heard about mm-hmm. it, but it's mm-hmm. from Eric Drexler and Mark Miller. Mark Miller was is a senior fellow at Torside. Eric Drexler co-founded Fawcett before he went to FHI and they've been working on this concept of a Pareto-topia for a long time, which was really like this kind of like very like win-win inspired approach to creating more beneficial futures by kind of like increasing the already existing Pareto preferred dynamics that civilization is running on. And so I'm really curious, do you have any kind of like potential examples of what a win-win strategy could look like or how we may even start to think about generating more win-win strategies out of this mess? Yeah, it's very... Tricky question for me at least to sort of answer in, in give a certain strategy, partly because I've only really started. I've been focused on 
explaining Moloch basically for the last couple of years. And then through that, I was like, okay, but it's one thing to explain the nature of the problem, but now you also need to offer people solutions. So I'm only just getting started on that. So forgive me for not having a complete answer. So win-win, basically, if Moloch is the god of negative sum game or competition gone wrong, misaligned incentives, what's the opposite? It's something that is mostly using cooperation, collaboration, but also has space for competition when competition is necessary. Uh, in order to create the most the most cool stuff, essentially, what creates more emergent complexity? Because actually, what Moloch does, if sort of left to its full, one of the, the sort of good example I think of Moloch in a more like nature type sense, I was thinking like, does Moloch manifest in nature at all? And technically, it needs t- some form of technology really to create very bad outcomes. But one one example I think it is fairly similar in nature is like the idea of cancer, where it, that's competition gone wrong within cells. It's like a cell that once thought it was part of a whole now thinks it's actually, no, I'm optimizing for my own individual thing. It sees itself as an individual. It's optimizing for that. And thus it starts competing for resources against other cells within the body. And because, um, it's so good at achieving its one, one narrow directive, which is replicate, replicate, it ends up out competing everything else and killing the host. Where was I going with that? Yes. So if, so yeah, so, so Win-Win is basically the god of, oh yes, and so with Moloch, what it actually does, it ends up reducing complexity because a body, a human body is more interesting when it's got all these different cells and organs and stuff doing, creating, working together to create this emergent structure. And you would never predict that a human being that can speak and talk and do all these fun things, create arts, would come out of this collection of these individual cells if you look at them as their parts, but when they combine together and cooperate, creates this magical thing. So Moloch is a complexity reducer if it does its if it's left to its own devices un- unconstrained. And so the inverse of that would be a, a complexity enabler. And so win-win is again, I've only gotten to the point of like, what does win-win like feel like? How does it how would its behavior be? And it's what how it appears to me at least is that it's most of the time it's like, yeah, let's all get along, let's work together, teamwork, let's do this. But when there's space for it to have a bit of fun and have a bit of competition, it's, oh yeah, let's play a game. Great. So it's very playful and it likes a little bit of competition and like a little bit of zero sumness that is constrained in a way whereby the, any externalities are strictly positive. And it has the wisdom to recognize when the externalities are starting to get a bit sketchy, barely being a bit negative. Really, that's just like as far as I've gotten in terms of how does that look in real life. I want to be able to instill that vibe into people as much as possible and hope that something will then emerge from it. If you get enough people sort of embodying this like idea of, of win-win-ness where it's like, okay, you know, thinking on this like almost like very meta level of interaction, like are we competing right now or are we collaborating? Like as a sort of as a starting point. Because I think a lot of people are in they're just sort of going about this, their interactions, whether it's business or whatever that they're, they're working on, kind of unconsciously about whether they're actually competing or not. And they're sometimes lying to themselves, like, oh, no, I'm a team player. But it's like, eh, are you or are you having these little moments of like jealousy and so on? So I do think a really a big step, but like essential step, long run, is for people to essentially level up their self-awareness about how they interact with competition as a, and cooperation as modes of relating to one another. And then in terms of more practical applications of that, 
I'm really, there's various like sort of different movements. I mean, you guys are doing it. There's the guys on the Bankless podcast who are trying to like develop music in the crypto space, like anti-Moloch type infrastructures where you have like these zero, zero knowledge or zero trust protocols where you don't need to basically trust can manifest without just because the system is so well designed. You don't need to be able to like know what the other person is doing. So that essentially like systems design, games design, ways where like potentially competing entities are through their active competition is aligned with the good of the whole. And I think what's useful in terms of like people who are trying to think of that is to look at examples in the past where we have defeated Moloch. Because it can get very depressing when you read meditations on Moloch and you think about it, you start seeing Moloch everywhere and you're like, geez, we've got no, we've got no chance. But we have defeated it in the past. Yeah, I think it's an actual miracle to an extent that we managed to reduce the number of nuclear weapons on Earth from 60,000 at their peak, like in 1985, to 12,000 or whatever it is today. That, under the laws of game theory, that shouldn't have happened. I, technically, we usually when it comes to military stuff, it only ever escalates, but they managed to de-escalate through treaties and diplomacy. Uh, similarly, there was, I mean... Some people say, yeah, but that's only because of technology. We They exploded the nuclear bomb and people saw how bad it was and so that put a cap on it. But there's an example of where we stopped technology in advance, which was, again, I think in the 80s, laser blinding weapon, blinding lasers were being developed to be used in combat because that's a great way of be defeating your enemy, just blindable with the lasers. But before they ever got used in the field in warfare, a an agreement was made, look, guys, we're just not doing this. Let's not do it. And they haven't been used, even though the technology easily could be developed. So there are these little instances where we have collaborated in, in with really very bad technologies. And I'm hopeful that we'll, we, the, the Overton windows finally opened on the AI safety issue. Obviously, there's still a lot of work to do there, but it seems like a lot of the AI leaders are at least showing that collaboration, they're giving the signs that collaboration is necessary whether they internally feel it is another thing, but I'm confident that at least some of them do. And if, again, we can have the conversation more generally about like certain things are good to compete over and other things are really not good to compete over. And developing potentially world-altering dual-use systems is probably an example of what we shouldn't be competing to build. So, yeah, that's... Hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, I mean, yeah, lots bubbles up at least. I think, and did, do you know the post also from Scott Alexander, um, The Goddess of Everything Else? In which yeah, um, I, it's the, funny enough. Yeah, just, um, yeah. I'm just recording with rational animations. It should be coming out very soon. They're making an animation of that post. And I've voiced The Goddess of Everything Else, which is, was very fun. So yeah, I love it. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, for people who don't know about it, I encourage you guys to check it out. I went as The Goddess of Everything Else at that event that we met at the other day at the house party. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, but, but that's, yeah. <laughs> it was a goddess-themed event for people that weren't out there, which is most people. But it's interesting because I think in that also you compare us like, there's the, god, the goddess of cancer, which is really like this goddess of competition, mutation, and then the goddess of everything else is like human collaboration and so forth. And I think it's an interesting kind of like dichotomy and like he goes through also how they could lead into a more transhuman future, which is really interesting. And I also really liked your kind of like, distinction that competition can be good at some points. Like one thing that we also point out in our book is that oftentimes when we compete, we actually try to compete at better collaborating or cooperating with others. And so much of the economy is competition if you just look at it like in an individual sector, but people within that sector are getting better at, at cooperating with others. And so I think 
the song right. drive, it also enables us to kind of like get much better at many things. But obviously when it comes to more of the multipolar trap situations and collective action dilemmas, that's where I think when it gets really tricky. And I love that you already pointed out the kind of like ZK uh, enable boost and so forth for potential kind of like cooperation technologies. And I think that crypto certainly has like really run with a kind of like whole Moloch theme a lot and really trying to build in better systems that really allow trustless cooperation or like trusted cooperation. They kind of can't really decide what they want to call it. And there are, I think, certain cryptographic technologies that were also pointed out in a really wonderful long paper from Ben Garfinkel at GovAI on how cryptographic technologies can maybe even help with some of the more large scale kind of like multipolar traps of cooperation, perhaps even about noobs and some AI dilemmas. But I also would really love your ideas on like, how do you think AI will affect that entire dynamic? Because like cryptographic technology allows, I guess, to kind of like somehow really like lock in our, like what we intend to do. But AI technologies, there's this thing called open source game theory from Endocritch, where he basically discusses the fact that sometimes in AIs, you can actually look at what they are going to do if they operate on a specific code or algorithm. And so I think there's new potential kind of like commitment technologies that AIs can also bring if they are transparent in, in their workings and interpreta interpretability is a, is a massive problem. But like, I think there's also interesting potential kind of like applications for that. And I wonder if that has come across your desk at all, or if you have any thoughts on how AI may, may potentially even help us cooperate better. No, that's beyond definitely way beyond my pay grade. I do know that there are definitely... The thing that encourages me is there are certain, there's definitely people within certain leading companies who are thinking about how to make better coordination mechanisms through AI, which is the best thing. Like maybe that is, that's the bull argument for building AGI, for building a super intelligence, right? It's like we can't seemingly get our shit together with climate change or anything, which should, shouldn't be that hard to cooperate on, but for some reason we, we can't. So it is, the strongest argument for why we should be building such a powerful technology to help us coordinate on the things that we struggle to. So in terms of specific projects, no, I just know that there's, there are certain, certainly people thinking about it who are leading some of the AI stuff. So it's a very, frankly, it's one of my, the sort of thing I'm on the dark days. Cause that's the thing, like you, you when you spend so much time reading and studying this stuff, it gets so what you get so worn down. I'm sure everyone here feels the same. So it's, it, yeah, it feels somewhat getting into like a Hail Mary thing. At the same time, like that's why the goddess of everything else is such a beautiful piece because it's like, it's in these things where it feels hopeless. It feels like the goddess of cancer is always winning. The goddess of everything else is like, ah, I just work in mysterious ways and you couldn't see what I was doing. And I think that's where I, found myself leaning more and more towards I was a diehard atheist two years ago. Certainly when I got into EA and so on, the more I read about rationality, the more like atheist I became. I mean, I was kind of just like whatever before. I wasn't ever thinking about it. And then I like thought about it more and I was like, no, clearly there's nothing. And interestingly, the last few years I found myself becoming more open to it because it's like the more you learn about how powerful the negative forces are, it's like there must be something really positive that's like keeping this going. And you get to the point where you can choose to believe or not. And I found that I'm more productive and more happy when I feel like I'm in sort of doing something in service of something great, something greater that wants us to be doing the work that we're doing. Sounds very strange. So 
Yeah, it, that's why I think it, it's, I mean, it's not surprising when we're talking about like end of the world stuff that people start leaning into the idea of like gods and demons, but it's, mm-hmm. like, there's value to an extent in like keeping, keeping an open mindedness to the idea that there are this like, there are these like forces that may even have their own form of consciousness and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's a diversion, but uh, even if it's not a god, it may also just be like, you yourself showing up differently in the world and that then creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. I often have that when I fight with my sister, if we decide to get more nasty to each other, it just kind of like totally goes down like a race to the bottom. But at the moment that one person starts cooperating again, suddenly you have this other dynamic again where tit for tat can kind of bring you back on the path of cooperation, which right. is interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. As well, I think it's Motluck and Win-Win are not opposites of each other because Win-Win is on a higher level of dimensionality. Like, Win-win is so powerful, but it, it's basically like Moloch is its bitch. Think of it that way. And it's like, if, if, if win being super good, is even like, oh, you know what? Being, have a little negative sum game. It gets like throw Moloch a bone and be like, God, you do your little, do some like nasty little thing over there if you really need to, but it just like, it can slap it down whenever it wants. So it's on a higher order. I just think that's an important distinction is they're not opposites. Yeah, um, and I think the creations for win-win are also like less scarcity where people are just a little bit able to kind of like show up a little bit better in the world and then also perhaps just showing them the massive wins from that could be achieved from win-win. And I think for that, Paridotopia relies on a lot of this potential. Mm. The potential benefits from cooperation could be much larger in a world from AI just because automation will make the gains much larger. And so I think that's always an interesting reframing. But I've spoken for way, way too long. I want to hand it over to Beatrice. She also has a bunch of specials for you. So thanks, mate. This was a ton of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy you guys got to talk about positive sum games. I know that's a common interest of yours. But we also wanted to make sure we have like some existential hope focused question at the end. So, I mean, we've talked about like all the reasons to worry, like Moloch and AI arms race and these things. But I was wondering, like, would you do you think of yourself as like hopeful or positive about the future? Depends on the day. And like, I really like, I mean, I just feel bipolar about it, honestly. Like some days I, I'm like, no, we're going to be fine. Like particularly if I've been, as I said, sort of inhabiting the, more, the like borderline religious space in my mind, like yeah, I've been doing meditating or I've been spending time in nature, spending time with friends, et cetera, psychedelics. Then I have the optimism and that's why it's really important to like find a balance where you do that. But then other times I found particularly of like what's happening with the ocean temperatures this year and like I don't know if you've seen the graphs they're absolutely terrifying just like the North Atlantic I think it's the North Atlantic is off literally off the charts heating up right now and they think it might be to sort of the knock-on effect of banning sulfur emissions or reducing sulfur emissions in shipping from 2020 and that's now catching up I'm sorry if I'm dropping on a new like existential dread on you all that you haven't seen so yeah, I wasn't like, I, climate change wasn't one of the things that I was, I felt like, oh, I've other, everybody, that's plenty of people are thinking about that. I don't need to think about that. And now the last week I've just been down that rabbit hole and it's like, oh, so I've got like a new bout of dread, like feeling, feeling it very saliently. So yeah, the honest answer is I like, I just deeply oscillate. And part of the best coping strategy, as I said, is nature, some psychedelics, for me, not saying this is for everybody, meditating, talking to people outside of like the conventional like EA sense, like almost like ch- dropping in with people who perhaps I, I would have referred to as like the wooey side of things, people who believe in magic, people who believe in like indigenous wisdom, that kind of stuff. 
going into that world is where I get my hope from, frankly. And I think it's there's and I think there's a lot of wisdom there that for me personally, I had neglected and not paid attention to sufficiently. And so, yeah, however that manifests, I mean, I think this stuff, the, the, everyone has their own path to this kind of stuff. For me, I had to go through some experiences where basically I couldn't explain they were outside what I would define as supernatural experiences, one of which was having a basically an energy healing where I thought I was, I had a, I'd been diagnosed with an, a hearing loss problem where I was told I was going to lose my hearing, basically. And I saw an energy healer and she essentially sucked in what she thought was a demon out of my ears. And my hearing got better. So that was a, a very paradigm shifting moment for me. Going from a complete atheist who didn't believe in any of this, like it was all nonsense. I believe materialists, physicists, et cetera, to being like, wait, bad energies might be a thing and they can get into you and someone, if you're in the right state, can suck them out and then you get magically better. Like it was actually a miracle from my perspective. And so since then I became a little bit more respectful of this idea of like energies and there's just a lot going on that we really don't understand. And that's where the good stuff lies. There's also bad stuff in there too, but there's a lot of good in there that it's where perhaps these solutions might, their source code comes from essentially. And then we have to find a way to like integrate them into like rational mind and enact them in the world. But that's where I think all the good stuff comes from. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because I think existential hope is like the woo side of EA a little bit. Like, I'm Oh, always, really? <laughs> I'm always a bit embarrassed if I say like, yeah, I work with existential hope stuff at an EA conference, but yeah. I, I, they're starting to come around to it. <laughs> it's all robots who can think of X risk all day and uh, yeah, uh, maximize how much we work. But yeah, I want to make sure I have time to just ask you, like, if we imagine a scenario where things actually go well, like we always say like this is a new catastrophe, like the opposite of a catastrophe. So that's an event where after it's happened, the value, like the expected value of the world is like much higher. And so we'll use this prompt to like make an AI generated art piece, this idea. So do you have like, what would be your positive vision of an event like this? It would Interestingly, I have a version to the term catastrophe. I don't know why, but I think it's because it contains the term catastrophe. So it's like, that's the base and this is the inverse of it or something like that. So, but I don't know if that's actually relevant. It's just like a semantic thing, I guess. But what does it look like? It looks like one thing that pops to mind would be essentially a world party day where everyone on earth is like, you know what? Today, no one works. We're all, or at least, Somehow we have the way that we set up the infrastructure such that on just for a few hours for a certain day of the year, everyone on earth like does some kind of celebratory thing at the same time and like is it and knows that everyone on earth is doing that celebratory thing. It's just this like little moment of, I don't know, this moment of just celebration and fun. That would, I think, be like the kickstart to send things on a, like a positive spiral. I, I don't know if earthly would create that. And I'm sure it's like in reality, waiting pie in the sky. But that was just what popped into my head. I don't know, like a world party. <laughs> I don't know what that, means. I think that sounds amazing. Like, yeah, it'll definitely be a very cool art piece if we manage to, to make it. Yeah. And so for 
if you think of someone wanting to like learn more about what you're doing, like maybe learning more about Molokum, you mentioned Scott Alexander and your videos and so on, but do you have any sort of recommended reading or watching any recommended resources, basically? Mm-hmm. I mean, but the videos, the last two, like the first two Moloch videos that I did probably... If you want to, if video is your medium and you want something fairly short, then that's probably the best thing. If not, if you want to take a deep dive, I would really highly recommend the Scott Alexander piece. What else? I mean, I love in terms of perhaps thinkers who maybe you guys haven't been familiar with to check out. Actually, I mean, it's my YouTube channel, Daniel Schmachtenberger. I think he's really, he's just so good at articulating these concepts far better than me. And he's been a big sort of source of inspiration for a lot of my, a lot of my thinking. I interviewed him on my channel a few months ago on AI and Moloch and he's a specific, it's kind of, it's a pretty depressing one. So it's not that, don't expect to come away feeling uplifted, but you will learn a lot. He, yeah, I recommend Daniel Schmachtenberger's stuff. Who else? I've got one with Jordan. I'm, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the game A, game B community. They're, also thinking about this stuff and it's slightly different manner. It's more, again, more like systems thinking. I would, would recommend that. And actually interviewing my pod, next episode of my podcast coming out, which is probably going to drop tomorrow is with this guy, Jordan Hall, who I also met through Daniel. He's very instrumental in the game A, game B community. So that could be useful. There's also this cool lady. If you want some more like looking into the indigenous side of stuff, old school wisdom, I guess is the word I want to say. Samantha Sweetwater. That's super cool. Another person I'd recommend. Yeah, that's a good starting point, probably. Yeah, I think that seems super interesting. We did have Daniel Schmachtenberger on here a long time ago. Oh, amazing. In general, it seems that like it is really hard for people to think about the future and feel like have positive visions for the future. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on like, either why that is and or what we could do about it to improve it yeah because like look at like the series black mirror it's technically i don't know if they started out charlie broker wanted to make it purely about dystopia but or it was meant to be more about plausible futures but the fact that it, i think in however many episodes they've done 18 episodes they've had maybe one or two positive ones and the rest are just like the most horrific dystopias it seems like there's a sort of gravity towards always, it's, yeah, it's just much easier to imagine dystopia. Why that is, I suspect it's because to, positive visions come from collaboration and they're like, they're a result of hive mind activity, essentially. You know, again, they're an emergent property of many humans interacting together, creating a thing. Whereas a dystopia, technically a single human, yeah, I don't know. It's because it's like a lower complexity state and has lower emergence. It's a more, more Moloch adjacent state. It's just easier. It's, it takes less creativity and imagination to do it. And thus, that's what we tend to envision. And that sucks because I do think to an extent thoughts create things. And if we're spending all our time ruminating on all the terrible dystopias, that's not good. It's not a good way of building the future you want. Pop to mind when you mention that is. Utopia isn't, or at least shouldn't be thought of as an end state, because actually if it, if you think of it as like, oh, it's this heaven we're going to get to, then it's no longer in service of the goddess of everything else or the goddess of win-win, whatever you want to call it, because it's not, it's no longer emerging. 
And actually, that would be a bad, that any fixed state utopia would probably eventually turn into a dystopia, turn into a hell because it's not evolving into anything. So we should think of utopia or a eucatastrophe, whatever you want to call it, as a process. What is the process? That's what we, we want to find. This, this positive path of evolution that will never cease to, it will keep evolving and becoming something new. What is the source code of that process? That is utopia. So don't think of it as a steady state and state that we should aspire to. It's not a goal. The goal is the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like the Kevin Kelly has that concept of protopia. Like, yeah, it's about <laughs> prototyping, prototyping in the future, which yeah. I agree with. Yeah, and I think just one last thing that I'd love to hear you talk about is like, I heard you on another podcast where you sort of introduced this concept of art, like, I think general artificial wisdom or like artificial mm. general. And I thought it was a really, yeah, nice concept. Would you care to explain it and expand on it a little bit? Sure. So it came about after. So my favorite definition of intelligence I've heard is intelligence is the ability to achieve one's goals across a wide range of environments. And so I was in, because I always think of everything in sort of game terms, I was thinking like, okay, so it's intelligence is the ability to win at defined games, but wisdom is the ability to choose which games to play in the first place. And so it's like, again, it's this like higher order level of like deeper knowing and, and deeper information processing. So when it comes to like something like AI, do we, people are like, oh, we need to build super intelligence. But under that definition, super intelligence is the ability to win it, being super capable at winning whatever the set game is. But that doesn't necessarily mean it comes with the greater wisdom to know what it should be optimizing for. So, you know, that's where you get like the ortho- orthogonality, the, the orthogonality thesis. And arguably the paperclip maximizer is the sort of the toy example of something that has all these smarts, all the capabilities but not the wisdom to know what it should actually be doing. And it shouldn't just tile the universe with paperclips, which again, very monarchy. Like that's a classic insta, you know, what a boring universe. Whereas there's no emergent complexity likely to come out of it. It just creates a steady end state. Very bad. So the meme we should be instilling in people who are working hard on building AI is like build an artificial general wisdom. That's the main thing. That's the real, and I, again, I would, I, have no data to prove this or even any strict rigor to explain it, but it feels like whatever, if there is the thing that wanting us to do, wanting us to succeed, it's like, yes, that is in service of me. So basically a wisdom enhancer. I also suspect that it will be, it won't be purely artificial. It'll be in some kind of hybrid between the digital and analog. The It'll have a biological component to it. But either way, that's the thing that we should be optimizing for. And we should try and encourage people to be sort of checking in with themselves. Is my intelligent system in service of also wisdom? Yeah. Hope that explains it. Yeah, yeah. I think that explains it well. And I think that sort of matches with how I think of existential hope is like trying to figure out what what are we trying to aim towards, which is like, I think the same type of questions really like, what goals should we be pursuing? And mm-hmm. yeah. So... Final question that we always ask is like, do you have like your a favorite piece of advice? What is the best advice you ever got? Oh, it's freaking one. Best piece of advice. Actually, 
I don't know how relevant it is for anyone here, but personally, one of the best things that sort of made me sit, I'm not very good at remembering like little individual nuggets from people, but one that sticks out was funny enough, it was Daniel Schmachtenberger. We met and this was like five, six years ago. And he sort of looked me in the eyes and said, you need to get in touch with your femininity. And I was like, huh? What does that mean? And I was like kind of annoyed by it. And it took a few years for it to really sink in what that meant. And whatever, for me personally, I, I think that's part of why I was a good poker player. Poker it tends to be very much a masculine type. Masculine type personalities are attracted to it, et cetera. And it was the necessary balancing I needed in order to be able to, I think, dip into this world and like I truly commit myself, step away from poker. That was like a long thing it took me. I wish I'd quit sooner and gotten involved, got working more full time on this stuff. So that that was personally the best piece of advice I received. I don't know how useful that is for everyone else. I would love to share my one of like my favorite aphorisms, like ethical axioms, whatever you want to call it. And it's love is that which enables choice by Forrest Landry, who by the way would be fun guest maybe i don't know if he's doing interviews but he could be an interesting person here he has like a whole metaphysical theory of which i could never possibly explain but he might be able to but that was one of the ones that like stuck out to me out of this sort of list of essentially i just think it's so beautiful love is that which enables choice because again that's so like so deeply win-win it's like empowering people or individuals or whatever to be able to make more choices and essentially keep the game going also ties in with the concept of finite and infinite games. Again, I imagine most people are here are very familiar with that. Again, win-win is like, you know, Moloch is like, I want to win the game right in front of me. And win-win's like, I just want to keep, I just want there to be as many games as possible, keep the games going so that everyone can just have as much fun as possible. And something is a loving act if it enables more choice for more people and keep that stuff, more and more stuff will emerge from that. But yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think remembering to sort of embrace your feminine side seems very useful. I mean, especially when like hanging out in the sort of a lot of technical circles or like the EA right. circle tends to be very male dominated and you tend to like maybe suppress most of your feminine sides just because they don't really score you a lot of points in those environments. And that's where they, when I refer to like the way stuff again, like that's, I think it's, that definitely comes with a lot of feminine energy. And I was just, I mean, I, as a, it took basically a borderline exorcism to wake me up. <laughs> the idea that this stuff is at least, it's okay to like think about it and play. It just have some probability distribution that there could be some reality there. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot of, yeah, technical stuff tends to miss some of that energy, but it, it's really hard to, some of that stuff, you just can't even use linear language to describe it. Yeah, yeah. no, I advice. definitely recognize it. We're actually an entirely female team at Foresight right now, so it's pretty nice. Oh, wow. We stand out. Yeah, it is very, it's also very nice to work with all of them. Thank you so much for joining. I'm glad we could make it happen. 